Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to give an update on Ukraine. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So, you may have heard something like this before. A tree planted for every, insert product name here, purchased whether it's like a t-shirt, shoes, or whatever you buy off the internet these days. You may have seen large corporations pledge to plant more trees as part of their sustainability plans. And you may be wondering, what are the results of that? Well, last year, billions of trees were planted around the world, and the impact of trees can also be so far-reaching. They can help fight climate change, restore biodiversity, and so much more. So there is actually a lot of benefit to planting trees. However, There is also a real downside to planting trees if you do it in the wrong way. Correct. If done in the wrong place specifically, they can actually fuel the reduction of biodiversity. Yep. Speed up extinctions and create less resilient ecosystems. If you plant like thousands of trees in a place that they do not naturally occur, it can also threaten our own water supplies in that region and increase temperatures since they absorb heat, whereas other places like maybe it was a natural grassland that you put those trees in actually reflect that heat. Mm -hmm. I bring this up because it is just a reminder that in the fight against climate change and global warming, there are many initiatives like tree planting campaigns that make us feel good. You know, when I buy a t-shirt and I see that, I'm like, oh, it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Yeah. Um, They seem like easy solutions for companies to adopt to be carbon neutral. But to really fight global warming, there is not an easy way out. And we as a society have to be able to put in the work and make the sacrifices to save us in the planet. So that is my, uh, it's not a tangent. It was actually a story. That was a tangent. This is actually a story from the New York Times. Did you have a question? Am I supposed to respond? Like that was a tangent. Any thoughts? (laughs) No, I I 100% agree. I think um, there has been a belief and consciousness around um, urban gardening and urban biodiversity that hasn't fully, what's the word I'm looking for, prospered under the sense of what does that mean? I, I do agree with and I do recognize that these, I think back to college, there was an app that if you were able to not touch your phone for a certain amount of hours, you planted a whole tree and they would profit from that and do all of those things. And it was good for the environment, but there was not an understanding of where that biodiversity was necessary. Um, And in my senior year, I did an alternative breaks trip in Chicago where we truly understood the impact of biodiversity, the impact of urban gardening, the necessities of um, green planting in a city. And I, I appreciate the support for attesting to what I guess I already knew to some extent, but what I was also able to learn of these are all good and, and smart policies, but they can be implemented poorly. Yeah. And I think that's like my overall point when it comes to like global warming and stuff, there's so much we have to do. And even though we have gone in that direction, it just, feels like we're not really rising up enough to that challenge. Mm -hmm. But like when companies and even individually, when we enact these kind of changes in our life, like just make sure you do that research. Just make sure that you know, 
like the, the solutions to this massive global problem aren't that simple. Um, but sometimes they can be if you just do your research a little bit further than, oh, trees are good. You yeah. know, so like some of these are a little bit more complex and it's just so vital that we do it right. I agree. Let's check out the international fold. Um, Taiwan warns against Chinese um, invasion of their airspace. Taiwan Air Force scrambled on Monday to warn 13 Chinese aircrafts that they were entering the air defense zone. Um, An important note here is that Taiwan has been on high alert following Ukraine's or Russian invasion of Ukraine and really noticing that the Chinese government has uplifted and pushed forward this assertion that they already own the region and it is not improper or inappropriate for them to be in the airway. Additionally, France has seen a peak in COVID infections. Um, Health officials have reported 18,853 new infections as of Monday with a rise in hospitalizations. Also, the UK courts have blocked gay marriage for the Cayman Islands and Bermuda with only one justice of five um, speaking in dissent of the Bermuda case. And we'll be right back. And we're back. All right. Let's talk about Ukraine and give everyone an update to the situation as of now. We have many points to talk about. So let's start with where Russian forces have moved in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So Russian forces have laid siege to... I believe it's pronounced Maripol, yes. a Ukrainian city. Yay, a Ukrainian city with over four hundred thousand residents who are trapped without clean water, food, or heat. Talks between Russia and Ukraine over a cease for, or for a ceasefire have stalled, and a humanitarian convoy to supply and evacuate mm-hmm. those residents has currently failed to reach the city. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of an ongoing theme with Russia, where they go, "Let's open up these humanitarian co- co- uh, corridors," yeah. and then immediately go back on that promise. Correct. Um, <laughs> And just as another update with that Maripol situation specifically, Russia has only intensified its bombing of that city. It's the only major population um, center uh, in Ukraine between Crimea and the Donetsk region. Mm-hmm. So Russia is trying to kind of create a land bridge between its forces and the uh, country instead of just on the sea. Yeah. And so that is why Russia is intensifying its attacks there. I do want to qualify. I did chuckle two seconds ago and... I want to take a brief pause because I know Vice President Kamala Harris has received a lot of flack for also doing something very similar. Um, And I've had conversations with individuals off the air around this, around the way that we treat our first female African-American East Asian vice president and understanding the speech barrier that comes with different languages and just the innate human response to chuckle. Um, But even beyond that, I I mean, I chuckled in that space because uh, there's a hypocrisy that African-Americans feel in America, recognizing the response and the tones that come here. Um, I've had multiple conversations with conservative friends around 
their views of Ukraine, their views of Jan 6, January 6th, not to use an abbreviation. Um, so when I do those chuckles, while I feel it inappropriate to have to explain myself as an African-American male, I do also think it's important to recognize that for individuals who might think that I'm making light of the situation or or not fully understanding the intensity of the situation, I do. Um, and very similar to our vice president, we do. However, there are moments where we recognize our own shortcomings and we might laugh. Continue, Caleb. All right. <laughs> um, so Russia also intensified its bombing of the capital city of Kiev, um, indiscriminately bombing residential and military areas, really just the whole city. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia has also bombed a military base located only about 11 miles away from the Polish border, which uh, really alerted NATO, especially yeah. Poland, who is a member of NATO. And Terrell, that's where I kind of want to go with this first part of the conversation. Like, obviously, it's all a guessing game of what Putin will do next. But do you think he intends to invade NATO countries or strike them? I've seen a ton of Twitter speculation about how he will, but I'm just not sure I'm quite convinced with that line of thinking yet. Yeah, I... It's hard to identify or pretend as if we can understand the inner workings or the thoughts of another man, female, so forth. Mm-hmm. I do think that there are a lot of posturous moments that we can lean on to say that there is an inclination. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was a tweet recently that highlighted this um Russian news segment that essentially showed the plans for Russia to invade both the Baltic regions and Poland. Um, There's also been multiple alarms before even the, uh, the siege on Crimea or not Crimea um, Kiev that Moldova has been raising alarms of, we are noticing a increase of troop presence along our border from the Ukrainian region. There are concerns that the Russian forces are going to move forward. My hope is that we wouldn't. My, my hope is that we all recognize that that would essentially throw us into a nuclear war, but I really don't know. And that's terrifying. Uh, Yeah. I think that's like the whole thing is like, we don't a hundred percent know. There is a thing about Moldova. There is like a separatist region of Russia in Moldova mm-hmm. and Russia, like, as I said earlier, creating a land bridge between Russia and Crimea. Yeah. Um, they're also attacking the port city of, of Odessa in Ukraine. And if that falls, uh, then Ukraine will not have any more ports or anything in the black sea. Correct. That's like kind yeah. of the last place to fall or the last like main station of um, Ukraine's port cities. But also that would, it's a direct route to that separatist region in Moldova in the West. Mm -hmm. And so Russia could potentially be trying to create a massive land bridge to more encirculate, encirculate, I think I'm saying that right, um, Ukraine, (laughs) um, but can actually supply its troops from Russia all the way over there. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, and this is a very American view. That's the hard part of this, of at this point, what is the end goal? Um, for Russia, you understand that it is a complete and total conquering, if you will, of Ukraine. But for the Ukrainian people, it is a sign of independence. 
but we are in a weird space now of Russia has a weird claim towards their southern region, saying that they have no access to the Balt or to the Black Sea. They also are trying to claim that their eastern regions are of independent um, uh, independence. I don't know, defiance, whatever word you want to look for there. And that, in and of itself, makes this a very difficult space because Ukraine, as an independent sovereign nation, is not only fighting to keep keep its capital, but is also fighting to define what its border and what its region is. And as we have these conversations about NATO, as we have these conversations about um, refugees leaving the country and potential pressures that Poland and the Baltics might feel, you can't help but understand that the war in Ukraine has a undefined end goal because both parties cannot be satisfied at the same time. It, it is undefined because like, I don't think Russia wins this like in the traditional sense. Like, yeah, I think their goal is to, uh, I, I, I honestly think that their goal isn't as much to conquer in the traditional sense. It's more to overthrow the government and whatnot. But the only way they think they can do that is by a full invasion. But like, I think Russia loses if they have to try to occupy because they're occupying a hostile nation that is never going to stop fighting them. Yeah. And I just doubt that Russia can even leave that place with their makeshift government in place. And that thing doesn't fall the day after they leave. Like, I just have a really hard time seeing what Russia, how Russia actually wins from this. Um, in terms of like actually conquering Ukraine, because like they might in a traditional sense be able to occupy the whole country and like stop most of the war. But I mean, there's going to be not only protests, there probably won't be protests, there'll probably still be war, mm-hmm. um, even if it's in smaller groups and whatnot. So I just like, I don't know, man. I, like Ukraine obviously is fighting for its sovereignty and for basically staying a, a country. Um, but I, I'm kind of in the, the camp of like, whether Putin knew this or not made a rash decision or not, like, I think there is an underestimation of the nationalism that Ukraine had since Crimea happened. And I think that, I think that Putin underestimated a lot, or maybe he did and wanted to do it anyways. Who the hell knows? He definitely underestimated. I think like not only that, but also our resolve. Yeah. I think that's an, an, an understanding across global politics he he underestimated the resolve of nato he a hundred percent thought that damage that had happened over the last four years had really truly broken the alliance to a space that they couldn't coalesce around an ideology or a belief to limit actions of aggression like this um i think he underestimated the global response around what sovereignty meant um this points back to the uk leaving um the eu brexit as many of us know i think he really truly thought that the lasting impacts of that would hold true to any form of sovereignty being taken and truly what we're witnessing now is a um there's a word for this. I cannot think of it right off the top of my head. It's the the um, recoilization, if you will, of like a rubber band. 
I, I do think we're in that space right now. We're seeing, we get pulled to our extremes over the last four years and truly saw them and one finger or maybe both slipped and we're seeing that rubber band come together. And I do think to an extent, Russia, specifically Vladimir Putin, underestimated how quickly those ends would come together, but also how closely they would come. And a realization of um, geopolitical maneuvers are still important to this country or to this world. It's not just a belief that, well, yeah, the UK might not view themselves as a part of EU, but that does not mean that they're not united in some way. Exactly. And I just like you kind of mentioned just like over the last four years of division and stuff And Russia is part of almost every effort that has divided us in some way, usually through social media hacking and whatnot. That is an important part that always gets left out of Brexit of yeah. the, the Russian government. <laughs> the Russian government played a huge part in Brexit and people do tend to forget that because it was such a close margin because the European um, people seem to just accept it as fact. But the Russian government played a huge part in how we got to Brexit. That's a huge part of why Prime Minister David Cameron felt that he could put himself up to an election because he did think that the people of the United Kingdom were, while fraught, against the idea of leaving the European Union. However, the misinformation and the intentional attacks of Russia played such a huge role in how we ended up here. The reason that Prime Minister Theresa May existed, the reason that Prime Minister Boris Johnson existed. And I do think, uh, to your point, um, that was a miscalculation on Russia's part that they really thought that the elasticity, that's the word I was looking for this Mm -hmm. whole time, um, the the elasticity of democracy was going to expand over multiple years where actually we reached our breaking point under a previous administration and we've now recoiled into um i would argue the core principles of democracy for now hopefully for now that lasts i i i don't think it's too far off to think that a lot of this was part of the plan right these these disinformation campaigns they're in every place where there's been a coup where there's opposition to an authoritative figure um like a dictator like in belarus myanmar um I mean, even even here in the U.S., when Donald Trump was elected, mm-hmm. there's Russian disinformation that we have seen. I don't think it's that difficult to kind of piece two and two together and be like, maybe this was part of the plan. And then you invade Ukraine and you're like, well, we've helped sow disunity across the globe. Like, it, like there will be a reaction, but I don't think they expected it all of us to suddenly just slap back into place like it was 2015 or something, you know? And I know you want to get into the, the refugee crisis that's come out of this Mm -hmm. specifically, but I do think, and I'm going to get a lot of crap for this statement. I Uh do think this is a ramification of the Obama administration. And I do think this is a failure. You just like to blame everything on Obama. No, I don't. I don't. You're like, thanks Obama. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. But we can't ignore the fact that Russian aggression where it is today is because a red line was drawn and Russia moved into Crimea. And because I, 
I own the fact that the administration recognized it was either push against Russia and potentially lead into a war and lead into where we are today or not. And it but, wasn't just Obama. It was the, it was all our allies too. I, yeah, it's tough. That's a tough decision. But I, I do think there could have been more of a fight. And I do think where we are today is inherently because Russia has had this appeasement, right? Like mm-hmm. we compare a lot to uh, Nazi Germany and the, the appeasement that Hitler experienced during um, his reign. I do think Crimea is a direct correlation to that. That was the first step of, well, I already got this region. Hence the reason all of us were shocked when he had annexed to some extent, he called independence for the Eastern region of Ukraine and then just moved in. We were all shocked by that. But when you actually put in, when you put into qualifiers and when you understand the full context, it's like, no, he had already annexed Crimea. Of course, he's not going to just annex the eastern region. Like, he doesn't think that that's going to get, that's not going to stop him. Pushing into Ukraine, he's really going to see what does the globe have or global regions have as a resolve and how are they going to push against him. And I can't help but look at that decision from the Obama administration and say that appeasement led to directly where we are today. Well, but I also. And I probably pushed back before. I think my pushback to this is, yes, there was, I mean, I think, I think you're arguing there was appeasement because we did sanctions and stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't that much. It wasn't super hardcore. Like what we're seeing today. Then again, today is like historically hardcore. Yeah. Um, But who's to say that that wasn't also a lesson for Joe Biden. I agree. That led to what we're doing now. I 100%. So there's some interesting, I think there's just a lot of interesting things that have came from even, I think, arguably the last decade and a half uh, from Putin's decision and how we've responded. But that's a good um, segue into that refugee crisis um, that's caused by Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. So, so far, 2.8 million Ukrainians have fled the country and the UN Secretary General has come out and said that the war's impact on civilians is quote, reaching terrifying proportions. This is per the New York Times. Yeah. And Terrell, I, I really want to have a conversation about what America's role is for Ukrainian refugees. So we have 2.8 million refugees, and that's a huge number. That's one bigger than many of the crises we've seen in Europe um, in the past few decades, at least. Many countries in Europe are taking in refugees, and the U.S. has offered temporary protected status to those in the U.S., along with $54 million in assistance to people inside of Ukraine. The U.S. has said that it will take in refugees if needed. But so far, that has not happened quite yet. Mm -hmm. As I imagine, the war only did start two weeks ago, so it'll take some time anyways. But there's also kind of a reasoning that um, the White House has talked about in which Ukrainians don't really want to go to the U.S. yet because in the event that maybe this war doesn't last as long as it it probably will, like it's still their place. It's still their home. But so also, I, like, I, I have an understanding. Let us not pretend like we're welcoming. <laughs> like, let's well, call that's, a spade that's a spade. what I was going to ask. I was like, what do you think that the U.S. should do here? Not be ourselves. I mean, there's this ideal in America that I I believe in, even though it hasn't always come to fruition, especially in the last few years. Um, but there's this ideal that 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 immigrants and refugees in helping others and allowing people to come into our country and, and, and live here and stuff is 
like in our blood is what the US is. That's an ideal though, and it hasn't always been practiced. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe it hasn't been practiced as much as we'd like to say it has. Um, but I mean, I guess I just wanted your thoughts on like, do you think that this administration can do that? Can live up to those ideals and should? 100%. I think... Do you think we should let any, like all Ukrainian refugees that need to come into mm, the country, should we raise the cap over 125,000? That's a hard question for me to answer because I have to own and I'm going to pay homage to Torrance, which I know I don't do often on this pod. But... That's a very racially motivated question. And I do think that the Ukrainian people are playing a very strategic piece here. I mean, we talked about this offline of, um, I don't think the blonde haired, blue eyed conversation would have happened if Republicans were not actively arguing for Vladimir Putin. However, once Vladimir Putin became this like centerfold of, well, Trump supports him, so we kind of have to support him. I do think the Ukrainian people felt into that of, well, we're white too. And and I might get a lot of pushback for that. I'll take what I get. No, I think that's a fair question or oh, point to, to bring up, I right? Think I think that's a fair point to bring up. I, and it's hard. It's hard to argue like, yeah, I I do think like at the end of the day, I very much approach these situations from a humanitarian standpoint. And it's like, yes, allow them in. Um, But I also, to really address your question, I do think the Biden administration is uniquely positioned in this space to approach and handle the current situation because they have built a bipartisanship effort, not only around Ukraine, but around infrastructure, around climate change, around the lynching bill has passed like yeah this administration is now and this is one of my biggest critiques about media yes i own that we're part of media at this point blah 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 blah. you can critique us too it's okay i don't think we're we fell at this as i make this point (laughs) um but i do think one of the biggest critiques about media right now is everyone's focused on inflation now of well the Biden administration is playing into and and gas prices are so high, blah, 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 blah. Oh, God. However, the Biden administration has also passed an anti-lynching bill, which has never passed this in this country's history. Yeah. The Biden administration passed an infrastructure bill. Republican support. Yeah. Has passed an infrastructure bill that has lifted our infrastructure out of the 1950s. It is actively working on the voting rights bill, which eh, I don't know if it's going to actually pass, but they're doing the work that's necessary. They pass a long-term budget, not just a stopgate, which is the only thing that the Trump administration was ever able to do, and also the second half of the Obama administration. Like Bipartisanship is ingrained in this administration. And the reason I bring that up is Lindsey Graham came out in support of allowing more Ukrainian refugees refugees into this country because he recognized it was a crisis yeah under any other administration i do not know if that is plausible i don't know if that's possible i don't know if it's possible outside of white countries i mean fair which don't get another story don't get me wrong i think it's fair to bring that up but i also think that like it doesn't if there's a war in any country i think we should be allowing refugees to come in yes so but i also don't know if Lindsey Graham as 
a leader in the Republican Party could ever make an argument that refugees need to be allowed in this country, white or white or multicultural, black, whatever word you want to use. Um, I do think that is an inherent piece of there is this new cushion. Eh, I don't want to say new because it's always existed. The Republican Party has just been very idiotic for the last four years. <laughs> Um, there's a cushion that Republicans are recognizing of we can play in this gap. We can play into these spaces and we'll still be safe. Lindsey Graham is not up for election for another four years. So he has no reason to really play politics like he had at the start of the Biden administration. And I do think there's this understanding and this, this perspective, if you will, that, um, we can, we can do, the things that are necessary to not only better the country, but better the world. If we're going to be this shining light on the top of a hill, if we're going to be the city on the hill, if we're going to be a white city on the hill, whatever metaphor you want to take in the situation, we can do the things necessary to move the global community forward. And, and again, to your specific question, I do think that that is a unique qualifier that the Biden administration has been able to tap into that I don't genuinely think any other administration could have. I don't think the Trump administration would have done well right now. One, (laughs) because NATO would not have been as strong. But two, I, I don't think they could have pulled a Republican Democrat cohesiveness as strongly as this administration has. I don't think a Bernie Sanders administration would have done this. I don't think Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, like insert person here. I really, truly don't think an administration could have done the work that has happened in these last several months, a month and a half. Like, let's be real. The invasion happened at the start of February and we're not even a month in yet. Um, I don't think another administration could have done that. There's a really good argument to make that Joe Biden has really met this moment. Yeah, I think I think I obviously I can't predict what will happen in the next uh, two to six years, but I think that we're going to be reflecting back on his presidency in that he he met the moment. Um, But anyways, speaking of globally uh, moving the world forward, let's talk about China and all this. Why? (laughs) Because it's kind of interesting. Let them be. Just pretend like they don't exist because we have one problem. Why yeah. Why add a second? Well, I mean, I think China's an interesting case in here. So Russia actually, it came out, made the rare vulnerable request of aid from China, mm-hmm. uh, military aid, economic aid, whatnot. And um, actually at a meeting that took place in Rome recently, the U.S. delegation responded by telling China that there will be consequences if China decides to support Russia economically or militarily. Mm-hmm. On what those consequences are, though, we don't, we're not sure for now. It's unclear. not relevant. Yeah. <laughs> One thing for certain, though, China has actually been distanc- distancing itself from Russia to an extent, despite avoiding direct criticism of Russia. So far, Chinese companies have hinted at complying with international sanctions against Russia, even though they have criticized the West's response. Mm -hmm. It's quite obvious China is trying to toe the line between uh, the U.S. and Russia, who they see as, quote, tired world powers. Their goal uh, to be seen as a pillar of stability in a world that has been increasingly volatile. 
the interesting thing about China's role here is that even though they perhaps knew about the invasion beforehand, many Chinese officials scoffed at the idea that Russia would actually do it. And one of China's government values that they have often spoke on is their support of national sovereignty, which does include Ukraine's. Yeah. And then you might ask, well, what about Taiwan? Well, they believe Taiwan is. That's a whole other story for another time. That's a whole different story. We talked about it a little bit in the love fold. Yeah. But Terrell, to kind of end this main segment, like what do you make of China's response to all this? And what's kind of the path forward? Because obviously we don't want Russia to get kind of backed into a corner and then they go to China and China kind of controls them a little bit. China's not going to own it. (laughs) That's my, that's my immediate. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I I mean, China made a quick move to hinder two of their larger organizations from supporting Russia. They they provocatively, outwardly told two industries, if you continue with Russian imports and Russian support, we will sanction you. So I do think China has stepped into this war haphazardly, but... I I think Russia or I think China falls prey to the same thing Russia did. They did not anticipate the global community coalescing as fast as they did. Yeah, they very much thought, well, there'll be fractures. We can lean on Turkey if we need to. We can lean on India. Like there were a lot of countries that they felt they could pinpoint and say, well, those countries haven't, so we don't have to. And again, I I give this as a testament to the Biden administration. Call me out if you will. I do think the Biden administration made a very intentional effort to release intelligence, to set a narrative, and to make moves only when they knew the global community was in their support. And it forced China's hand to recognize that they could either go along with those policies or they could step away from them. They could be with Russia. Um, Iran is another country that is... Um, very much falling into the the Russian view of we're not going to sanction Russia. We're not going to play a role in here, but we will advocate that this war should end. Iran is also prey to um, the Russians right now because the Iran nuclear deal is being handled mostly by Russian government. Yep. And they very much do need Russia to be at the table. So they, there's just a lot of I think this specific uh, issue conflict whatever word you want to use is so entangled in so many ways where I've I've seen on a lot of TikToks I've had a conversation with some of my more left-leaning friends of well Gas prices wouldn't be this high if big oil didn't um, didn't play into it. And it's like, no, you're simplifying this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, really, truly, you're simplifying this. Gonna, and that's the same thing I would argue for China. You're going to make this my tangent, and I didn't want to talk about it this week. Um, <laughs> I think it's open. Because I do think this is where Tanja falls in. Or Tanja. I do think this is where China falls in of <laughs> Tanja. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, I do think this is where China falls in of it's an oversimplification. Like China is, whether we agree with them or not, they're toting a line right now between supporting Russia and also not being completely alienated by Russia because they recognize that they do need the global community and that it makes it hard to argue where they fall in. I, I do agree that they're looking at Taiwan and they're looking at what's happening 
in Ukraine and saying, can we do something similar? But I also think they're recognizing that what matters for them right now, and especially after all of the, the ramifications of COVID, they are recognizing that they need the global community to support them. They had one of their largest housing subsidiaries almost go into bankruptcy because of COVID. And it almost crumbled their economy. And actually, it almost that would have had a huge impact on the world economy. Exactly. Because China is really ingrained in the world economy. Yes. Russia is not. So while we feel the effects from Russia, it would be world. It would be so much worse. If this was a China we were alienating. And that's an oversimplification. And I like I would entertain your points on the whole well we're paying more prices because of oil and all those pieces i would entertain that question from you because i do think that we've entered a space where our generation is oversimplifying the issue and not seeing that there are so many other connectors that play into this well look i completely understand it like not only are we paying for more for like everything from groceries to i don't even know just goods in general but we're also paying even more with gas now. Like I get it. I get it. And a lot of it is because of this war, but I just want to like, I have so many thoughts about this. Like, cause even I like, I got got gas the other day. We're in Boise, Idaho and gas is like four and a half of a gallon. And I'm like, God damn it. So I got like half a tank and it was over $50. So like, I get it. Cause like, Holy shit, that sucks. It hurts. And like, there's a lot of people who, who I'm, I'm more fortunate than a lot of people. And I don't know, it, it's just, it's just a lot, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So like, so I understand and it's easy to oversimplify, especially when you're feeling that pain. I do think that the Biden administration has a huge role to play here because it's not like, sorry, I have a lot of thoughts. I haven't yet formulated them yet. I didn't want this to be something that came up this time, but it was inevitable. <laughs> I would never. So like a lot of what's happening is that Russia, like Russia's whole economy is really built off like oil and gas. Yeah. Like that's what they export. That's, that's like what they specialize in as a country. There's a lot of like other oil countries like Venezuela and Iran, for instance, and even us Mm -hmm. um, in Saudi Arabia and OPEC and blah, blah, blah. But Russia contributes a large part to all of that, to the global economy in terms of that kind of energy. So when we we're banning oil from them, which we did a couple weeks ago, so is so Europe and UK. its allies. Yeah, UK, France, Spain. Yes, not all the EU, but most of it. We're getting there. Yeah, and that's like the thing is that like specifically Europe really relies on Russian gas, but less than ten percent of our percent. Yeah, Europe. Yeah, but less than ten percent of our imports of like oil and gas is from Russia. So you might be asking, well, why does it affect us so much? Well, like in a global economy, this stuff does affect us. Mm-hmm. And like I was listening to an interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren and some of it she claims is price gouging, which is probably partially true. Not completely off. Yeah. By oil companies and whatnot. Yeah. But like here's the thing too is like we have like emergency reserves and we've released some of that to help mm-hmm. with the prices and stuff. And we have So has Europe. So has Europe. But like we have to support Europe and it fulfilled their energy needs at the same time of fulfilling ours. And yes, you might say, but wait, I thought we were energy independent. Why does this matter? Well, like we are, because if you take all the places we know oil is not where it's all being drilled, but mm-hmm. all the places oil is, we are energy, energy independent. Yeah. But if we put drills in every single place, we know there's oil like 
because there's just not drills everywhere and some lands are protected and stuff. But if we said, fuck that, let's put oil wells everywhere that we can in the country, it would still, just the time to set that up, the lead time of that is like half a decade. Yeah. Like we wouldn't see, if everything else remained the same right now, we wouldn't see prices drop from doing that activity for several years. But also an important part to add to that too is this is the price for peace. And I do think the vice president tried to address that to some extent. And I do think it's important in the space of uh, the reason we see our prices come up and I, Caleb, you articulated this perfectly is um, yes, we are energy independent, but because European nations are recognizing that they can no longer take Russian oil, which did account for over 70% of their energy. They need to pull from other sources, i.e. OPEC, us, the United States, other regions that they can try to make up some of that, not just the reserves. Being completely transparent, their reserves were never going to make up for the amount of oil that they were losing from Russia. And the reason that all of that matters is by being interconnected to this degree, countries recognize each other as partners. They don't recognize each other as adversaries. They come to each other as equal players on a field, not some conquest, if you will, like we saw in World Wars One and Two. That is important here. I 100% feel that. I have a 2017 Ford Fusion. It is a 15-gallon tank. Um, I filled it up for half a tank two or three days ago, and it was $50. So that tells you how I felt. Yeah, like three Uh, years ago, it was like 30 bucks to fill up my whole tank. I was going to say it was more like three quarters because, like, let's be honest, 15 gallons is not going to put me on $100. But the reason it matters that the U.S. is able to contribute to the global standpoint when it comes to energy efficiency, when it comes to energy uh, economics, if you will, um, is a move for peace. And we can't play into this narrative that we need to be upset this is going to sound awful, but we can't play into this narrative that we need to be upset by the rising gas prices because at the end of the day, it is not the Biden administration, the Boris Johnson administration, the Macron administration that caused this. It was Vladimir Putin's decision to invade into a sovereign country. And that is the core piece that I do think we have lost out on because us as Americans are so used to two to three dollars for gas versus our european allies who've seen five dollars a gallon in peacetime yeah no and i i I actually do agree with that i think that joe biden has asked the american people to make sacrifice yeah and some of those sacrifices like we've already made a lot so i understand the exhaustion because it's been almost three years of pandemic now Mm. So I, I completely understand why, like, it's, I, I understand the sentiment of like, well, why do we have to play a role in this? It's hurting us. I get that. But like, you're right. Vladimir Putin caused this. It wasn't us. It was Vladimir Putin that decided to unprovoked attack Ukraine. Like, it's solely his fault. And here's the thing. The Biden administration, you know. Um, we're starting to lower some of our sanctions that were on Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And Venezuela is a huge oil producing country. 
That's a big deal. Plot twist, that's why we're lowering some of our sanctions on Venezuela. Oh, absolutely. But, <laughs> but honestly, if you look at it, I am in the camp that those sanctions never really worked. I agree. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like... And that's a different conversation. We're doing it because we need their oil at this point. About what's happened in Venezuela in the last several years. But like, I think that to finish off my thoughts, I think that the Biden administration has a real opportunity here. And I'll tell you why. And a lot of people like disagree with this. A lot of people, especially climate activists, see that we need oil and we need to produce more of it and whatnot. And they're like, no, we shouldn't do that. We should work on renewables and stuff. And that's great. This is short term. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree, though. This is a perfect opportunity to really ramp up the renewable spot. And I think that's what should be the messaging. I actually think that that's a really powerful stance that you can take. But in the short term, we're going to have to hurt a little bit with global warming and stuff to do that. And that's just because of the nature of the situation we're in. But like a couple weeks ago in the Above the Fold piece I had... I was talking about how like Germany and Europe like relied on Russian oil and gas and they're starting to ban it all of a sudden. And there's a lot of, a lot of analysts are already seeing like a lot of companies start or companies, a lot of countries to already start to pledge to put way more into renewables and whatnot Mm -hmm. because of this. And I think the response uh, while, while it's, it's too early to see, and we probably won't see it for another year or two, or even, even a few years from now, I think our response to this, if done right, could lead to one of the biggest decades of like fighting global warming we've ever seen as uh, a side effect of this, of what this, of what Russia has done. And I, I, I think that's something that you have to consider despite using a lot of oil right now. I agree. Um, I want to just talk about one more thing to wrap up this conversation that just happened earlier today, which is Monday. <laughs> <laughs> So a Russian state TV employee bravely interrupted one of the broadcasts, just went in the background of like the anchor with Mm -hmm. a sign that said, they're lying to you here. And she was yelling, stop the war. And like, first of all, that's incredibly brave because that kind of stuff that happens in Russia usually gets met with uh, uh, jail time, but their jail time is literally can't like labor camps Mm -hmm. and or you die at some point. You just randomly die from something. Only if you're challenging Vladimir Putin. Yeah, you're kind of challenging him there mm. on state TV. I challenging just, him for his leadership. That's fair. I I just want to just like recognize that there's a lot of there's a lot of heroes in this situation, and it's what's sad to see is like this just should have never happened in the first place. These people shouldn't have to risk their lives. There shouldn't be thousands and thousands of civilians dying to indiscriminate bombing in Ukraine. They're, 100%. Like this whole situation should have never happened. And, and I don't know, just seeing some of these acts of courage and bravery, like, I don't know, in my lifetime, we just haven't been in a situation quite like this before, especially that it's all documented on social media and stuff. In our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's just, I don't know. It's just a weird, it's a weird world we're living in right now to say the very, very least. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. 
Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our newest episodes. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. All right, Terrell. Well, to get away from from some of the everything else news, <laughs> uh, it's March, and that means it's March Madness, which is uh, one of my favorite times of the year, just because I don't know. People have the thoughts on college basketball, including yourself, Terrell. Correct. But I think March Madness is a really fun, massive tournament in sports in America. We just proved that they could do two games for Final Four and it'd be more interesting, but I digress. Okay, well, (laughs) to those of you who don't care that much about sports and don't know what I'm talking about, March Madness is the 64-team tournament for college basketball for women's and men's. And honestly, it's madness because they only play one game. Um, and that means there can be big upsets and whatnot, even the best teams in the nations who might actually win. Have one bad game, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's what makes it kind of fun. No. So, okay, well, I'm not I'm not trying to argue with you here. I'm just saying that I like it, and this is my tangent. Okay? You pulled me in, so I'm going to call it out. <laughs> but continue. But anyways, this year in March Madness, you know, my team, uh, actually the college I go to, Boise State University, we have we actually have a tournament team this year. They're the number eight seed, which is fantastic. And I I'm actually going to get the opportunity to watch them play, which I'm really pumped about. And if they win their first game, which you know, fingers crossed, I have no idea though. Doubtful. That's fair. Um, then they will most likely actually pretty much officially play the Gonzaga Bulldogs, which is the number one overall team. So kind of a bad trajectory for Boise State, to be honest. But uh, uh, I get to watch, if they win, I get to watch that game. And Gonzaga is the team that I grew up with. So I'm just like, this week's going to be a good week overall. Really? Yeah. What about you, Terrell? Take us on a tangent. Oh, God. Do we want to stay with sports or do we want to go to entertainment? Because, like, sports, I can just rant about the fact that Tom Brady's coming back to the NFL. Oh, God. Aaron <laughs> Rodgers is the highest paid quarterback, and, like, the NFL is just inherently racist. But, nah. Aaron Rodgers isn't. isn't Let's good. not rant about that. Let's rant about one of the greatest movies come out in 2022, The Batman. Oh, my God. It was so good. <laughs> you and I got to go to watch, got to go and watch it together. I'll and see it again, too. I probably will, too. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think I'm going to go with a friend here soon, but I think one, I know going in, a lot of people gave Robert, Robert Pattinson a lot of crap of like, Oh, he can't handle being Batman, blah, 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 blah. What vampire boy? (laughs) He was, he's always been a great (laughs) actor. People never gave him enough credit, but even beyond that, I think this is the first Batman to play their age. No disrespect to Christian Bale. I loved Christian Bale as Batman. Yeah. I also actually reflecting like Ben Affleck as Batman. Uh, not my favorite one, but I not do, my favorite. I, I think it fit. If you've watched the movies with Ben, ben Affleck in it, I think it fit the vibe. But yes. It wasn't. Those weren't my, favorite. but he was also an older Batman. And I do Absolutely. think Ben Affleck played an older Batman, but I do think Robert Pattinson played a, Batman in his mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s, that was really coming off of the death of his parents. He was still understanding it. He was still understanding who he was trying to become, what being a vigilante in his city meant. And the inherent flaws that he had as Batman played so much to his character that we've never really been able to see with Batman. With Christian Bale's Batman, he was perfect. 
Uh, no. He was perfect. Christian Bale had a lot of flaws as Batman. He had was personal just flaws. It was a different kind of like yeah. look at Batman than what this one is. He had a, a lot of personal flaws of like trying to understand, but I would argue that Christian Bale's Batman was the polished, I've been doing this for multiple years, Batman. Okay, I agree with that. Because I think Christian Bale, like, and this is like the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. Which I still think the Dark Knight might be the best Batman movie ever. I've changed. Uh, really? Because that's not what... Wait, I know, that's this, not what I said when I... you think this one's the better one? I, I think they are very that wasn't close. wasn't your initial... I think they are very close. I, do I don't know. I, do I don't know which way I fall. But well, I do think they are very close. A lot of people think that the Dark Knight was only good because of Heath Ledger. No. I disagree. Incorrect. <laughs> I think they're close. I think it edges a little above, but I really loved this Batman movie. Like, I really loved it. And I think Christian Bale, he had flaws and he asked questions about what does it mean to be Batman? And it came in different situations than what this one does. Yes. And like, Christian Bale at the end of the day did make what seemed to be the right decisions. Yeah. Whereas this one did not always the very beginning of the movie of this one. And this isn't really a spoil or anything, but no, but it's Halloween night and you see like, it's like voiced over by Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. as Batman talking, just talking and it's showing the city and it's showing it at night and it's showing these criminals um, like robbing a store and then walking out, but then seeing like a really dark shadow in between buildings and like getting scared because he's, and then Robert Pattinson's voiceover is like talking about how fear can be used and stuff and fear mm-hmm. is power. And then, and then it shows like a group of people beating up on this guy in the subway. And then the darkness, you hear just the clink of Batman's boots in the, by the way, the score is epic. Like I was like chills. Like I just thought it looks, Boot. it was such an epic look like scene at the very beginning. But you're left with this quote where he says, I am vengeance. Which is a very, if you are a Batman stan, like that's a very younger Batman persona. Exactly. Like it's just, it's a completely different, you're right, age Mm -hmm. and take because he's coming out of, he's at the age where he's still reeling from his parents just dying like that. He hasn't really gotten over it. He doesn't necessarily know what Batman means yet. Yeah. Um, and he's not the typical Bruce Wayne you see either. You see Bruce that's, Wayne. I do think that's also why I liked him so much is it played into that whole mantra of this isn't the polished Bruce Wayne, which I would argue yeah. Christian Bale was that polished Bruce Wayne Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, because half the time you most of the time that you see Bruce Wayne, he is like this playboy billionaire. But this is a younger, I have not fully owned my wealth. I don't know how I fit into the system. I don't want to replace my parents. Again, not giving any way to giving away anything to the movie. And I I just think that overall, Robert Pattinson, Robert Pattinson played the role better than anyone we've seen in a while. Oh yeah. I thought it was so good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't know. It was just so good. It was good. I will watch (laughs) it again. It's going to be on HBO Max very soon. (laughs) I'm just going to outright buy it. It was that good. Just watch it on HBO Max. I mean, I will, but like, it doesn't stay on those forever. Yeah, it does pretty much. Well, when it leaves in five years from now, I'm going to buy it. (laughs) Fair, same. (laughs) It's just such a good movie, y'all. You you need to go watch it. Um, It's epic. It really, you, you get another, this is what I love about DC more than Marvel is Marvel is like the classic, like 
what superheroes like superhero badassery blah 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 maybe some downside to it not a Mm -hmm. lot of darkness i mean there is at some points but it never feels like they're gonna lose whereas Mm -hmm. like yeah yeah well that's how i feel anyways like but like in dc and not every dc movie but like the batman movies and whatnot i always get this sense of like is Batman making the right decisions? Yeah. Is this so-called vigilante superhero making the right decisions? And I don't know if Robert Pattinson as Batman makes the right decisions in every part of this movie, but at the end of it, you get a glimpse of what Batman can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like why I like these movies so much more is it just takes such a deeper dive into like our culture of superheroes. than I think other movies do. I agree. Well, now That's that our show. Take, now that I've taken over your tangent. <laughs> what? No. The I'm, white man never. Oh, no. no. <laughs> I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Tarok Ouch. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.